how do we proclaim the gospel to a world that thinks so differently? Contextualization is a buzzword in some Christian circles to describe the way our message needs to be fitted to our surroundings. Today's phrase is often used as a prime example of how Paul drew on the truths already present in the culture to build up a credible gospel presentation. You see, in him we live and move and have our being was originally a line from an ancient Greek poet. Yet Paul uses that phrase to further his gospel proclamation. So then, how do we relate the gospel word to an unbelieving world? Well, last time we learnt the truth that the Christian message turns the world upside down. Uh, the gospel is the subversion of all our natural thinking. Therefore, when this message meets the philosophers of Athens, we expect to see quite a clash, which is exactly what Acts 17 delivers. From verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Uh, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating strange gods, foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Other visitors to Athens may have marveled at the temples and the statues. Paul was incensed. He did not see these other gods as stepping stones to Jesus, but as idols, pure and simple. In contrast, Paul proclaimed foreign gods, strange gods to the Athenian ears. In fact, the Athenians seem to have thought that Paul was preaching two gods, Jesus and Anastasia. Anastasia is the Greek word for resurrection. Paul was not seeking common ground on, on the basis of, of some common notion of deity. He dives straight in with the Lord Jesus and his resurrection. Not very contextualized, you might think. It all seemed like so much babble to the cultured Athenians. But why? I mean, we know that Paul was a wonderful communicator. Millions still read his letters. We know that these philosophers were experienced in comprehending new ideas. But the gospel sounds to them like gobbledygook. Paul would explain all this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. He says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Yet Paul persists, as should we all. And when he has another opportunity, he sets out his gospel message once again. Let me read to you from Acts 17, from verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, or you could say superstitious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. Uh, some see this opening as Paul's establishment of common ground. He's doing good contextualization. Um, yet, if there's anything which Paul concedes to the Athenians, it is their ignorance. He's basically saying, look, the one thing you know about God is that you don't know him. I'm going to declare him to you. And so away he goes in verse 24. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. So we don't make houses for God. God makes a home for us. We don't serve him. He serves us. 
He doesn't need us. We need Him. It's also blatantly obvious, and yet the very foundations of human religion are founded on folly. And it's folly which Paul is keen to point out. He continues by presenting the gospel of the two men. This is also something he does in Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. He tells the story of the world as the story of two representatives, Adam and Christ. First, he tells us of the original man, the original man from whom from whom all nations of men have come. So, verse 26, From one man God made every, every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the times set for them, and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him, and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In verse 28, Paul quotes from Epimenides, the uh, original source of today's saying, in him we live and move and have our being. That came from Epimenides. Um, It's the equivalent of a preacher citing the latest pop song. And of course, he he uses these Greek quotes from the culture to speak against Greek culture. He's saying, if you really believed what you sing about, how could you live the way that you live? Paul is not vindicating the latent wisdom of the Greeks. He's exposing their foolish inconsistencies. Epimenides spoke far better than he knew and far better than the Greeks lived. On Paul the preacher's lips, the truth is commandeered and pressed into gospel service. Yes, we live and move and have our being in God. Yet when those same words were on the poet's lips, they only stood to reveal the folly of all Greek civilization. But such folly must end. Verse 30, verse 30, in the past God overlooked such ignorance. It's all just ignorance he's talking about. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by a second man, Jesus Christ, by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. This is the second man to answer Adam, the first man. Jesus passed through the door marked death, the door through which we we all must pass, and he came out to the other side. When we pass through that door, we are assured that he is the one to meet us. He is the judge. Therefore, we must repent. We must completely change our thinking. That's how Paul unpacks the meaning of repentance. Our minds must be reconfigured by this gospel story, this strange gospel story. The gospel does not confront us as one truth among many. And it is not helped by human truths. The gospel sets a question mark over all truths. It does not build on our latent religious or philosophical intuitions. It supplants them all. In short, the gospel shows us what should be so obvious, and yet it strikes the fallen mind as revolutionary. God does not live in the intellectual worlds that we build for Him. No, we live in His world. We don't need to contextualize things for Him. He makes the world, He Himself rather, is the context for all of us. The problem of contextualization is solved by God because He is the context, not any of our human thinking. For in Him we live and move 
and have our being.